Hey, God for Grown Up listeners, we'd like to invite you to join us for a special series led by Dr. Beatrice Lawrence about death and dying from a Jewish perspective. What do you plan to cover in this series? Well, Dan, I'm going to start actually working through texts in a chronological pattern. So we're going to start in the Bible and look at the experiences of people there dying and the different ideas about the afterlife that occur there. You're looking perplexed. Why would a person want to come to a Lenten series on dying? That sounds really depressing. Oh, I don't know, isn't it just interesting? It's like the weather, it happens to everyone. It's fundamentally a matter of meaning in human life, isn't it? What's going to occur? Yeah, this series will be offered at Queen Anne Lutheran Church. It has five sessions, Wednesdays, March 4th to April 1st. 6 p.m. we start with a simple supper, 6.45 to 7.30 we have our program. There is no cost, all faiths are welcome. So we invite one and all to a conversation that, like the weather, affects everyone. (laughs) Hope to see you there. I recall when I was four not being able to sleep at night because I was trying to conceptualize what happens when we die. Right. Paul Tillich says in one of his sermons that the most profound image of hell is the image of heaven with which most Christians understand the afterlife because it's just an ongoing, uh, endless future. And that is hellish when you think about it. I used to think about that a lot as a kid. I spent a lot of time alone. But I think... I think... You know what? what? So did I. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Hence the source mm-hmm. of the podcast. Even if my daughters are in their 80s when I die, I'm going to haunt them and tell them to put on a jacket. If your daughters are in their 80s when yeah. you die? Yeah. So how old will you be? 120. <laughs> I'm Dan. And I'm B. And this is God for Grownups. And tonight, we want to talk about life after death. Life after death. Life after death. Who starts? You start. Oh, dear God. Well, um, this is a really huge topic, and it's one that we each come across in our studies. Also, Dan, as a clergy person, actually does funerals. Are they graveside, typically? I have done probably half a dozen graveside services. Those are usually committals rather than memorials. Oh, Most of what I do is a memorial, which is a, a service at the church where you don't have the casket present okay. or the or the urn present. Okay. Uh and the uh the committal is is graveside. In a couple cases I've done the whole service graveside. And I would say in almost every case given that this is Seattle, it has been in the rain. Wow. And people tend to think it's so interesting in those circumstances if there's a break in the rain, if there's a, a parting in the clouds, they think it's God's work. They talk that they way. They always say that? There's all kinds of little God humor references really? in the context of funerals or memorials. Yeah, they. a lot of people will say, well, I just think so-and-so is up there now uh, fishing uh, eternally. Really? Yeah. Okay, so um, Jewish funerals are pretty much designed to be graveside. Like the actual service ritual element of it is in burying the person and the stuff you do around burying them. And there's, um, there's one Jewish cemetery that's up near Bothell, um, called Gan Shalom or garden of peace. But here's the thing. Um, it is so big 
And in Jewish tradition, you don't actually reveal a headstone until 12 months after the death. Right. That it is not uncommon for people to go to visit their loved ones and they can't find them. Wow. Losing a loved one. Yes. After twice. you've already lost. Yes. A woman at my synagogue the other day, she was like, I went to visit my ex-husband and I couldn't find him. Wow. So here yeah. I am. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but you don't have that sort of thing of um, talking about heaven or talking about what they're doing. Like the whole Jewish funeral service is, is not about the experiences of the deceased. Yeah. It's so, it's so strange. I think there's an old tradition in Judaism that... Uh, the soul lingers by the body for four days before it departs to be with God. Is I, I know they say in the Gospel of John where Jesus brings mm-hmm. Lazarus back from the dead in chapter eleven that he waited four days mm-hmm. to assure those presumably to assure the reader uh, those around him that Lazarus was really dead, and it was then that he Brought him reanimates Lazarus. I have a question about that, but first, yeah, um, I have lots of the mystical tradition that I've that. come across is that it takes seven days, and that's one of the purposes of sitting Shiva, is to make it clear to the deceased that they're dead. Hmm. And then at the end of Shiva, you go out, the family goes out, and they take a walk, and they take the deceased with them, and they go on a walk, and they sort of usher off the deceased, and then return home alone. They take the deceased. Oh, I see the spirit mm-hmm. of the deceased. Yes. How do you how do you do that? What's the practice? Oh, I don't think there's anything that you say or particularly do. This is a more mystical understanding that it takes seven days for a person to figure out they're dead. There's another tradition that it takes a year to figure out you're dead, and that's why the Jewish grieving rituals are over the course of a year. The converse of that is that it takes some people twenty eight thousand days to figure out they're alive. That was really deep. <laughs> That was like just shy of 80 years, That's right? Yeah, that's the average human lifespan, 28,000 days. Way to stress me out. Well, <laughs> I think that's why people use humor at, at funerals is because they're stressed out and there's so much anxiety around death. And I have it. I have tons of death anxiety. And not only about myself, but about the people that I love. I know. What happens? I know. And... I've long believed that the human mind is simply incapable of processing the reality of death, which is why we have all these asides and why we have these rituals. I don't think the rituals are irrational. I heard that recently. I think the rituals are a kind of necessary psychological compensation for the deficiency that's being experienced, the loss of, of another person. And they can be really psychologically healthy. Yeah. Um, um, the rituals around death, they can be helpful to the people that are grieving and they can help everyone there process it and right. put it into context. So I'm a huge fan of rituals Me too. around people dying, but it's true. Who was it who said that everything people do is rooted in the fear of death? Who said that? Probably Ernest Becker. Okay. Ernest Becker's denial of death, which is, I think it's the, not surprisingly, least widely read Pulitzer <laughs> Prize winning book. In the history of because it's a real upper because it's 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 called the denial of death and of course the fact that people aren't reading it just proves the point yeah nobody wants to acknowledge the fact that someday each of us will no longer be that we move from till it calls it being not yet to being no more. Do you want to talk about something else instead tonight? No, I don't. Okay. I want to, I want to keep talking about death. <laughs> okay. Perfect example of death tonight. super dark here. So I have a question about Jesus and Lazarus, if I may okay. ask. Okay, yes, um, Lazarus. New Testament is not my area. Um, 
and I, I fully admit that I'm not well educated in that regard. Did anybody think, wow, it's been four days too late? Like, Jesus, don't do that. That's, he's already a little bit gross when he comes back. Like, is there any of that? I think that. Okay. But there is no evidence of that in the text. I mean, I, there might be some concern. I have to go back and look at chapter 11 of the Gospel of John. Okay. There is, I believe there's a stench that comes from the, yeah. the, the, the tomb. So, but... I mean, he, he emerges out of the tomb and his bandages are unwrapped. And I, I think to my, or yeah, and I think to myself, I did a whole sermon actually on this uh, from Lazarus's perspective. <gasps> because it seems to me that one way to read the Gospel of John, there are many ways to read any text, but one way to read it is to do so from the perspective of, an, uh, of another character who's otherwise, yeah. uh, perspective is ignored. That's especially important for the marginalized. In this case, it's Lazarus. And it seems to me like Jesus lets him die to prove a point. Wow. That's up to prove a point about the resurrection. You've seen what I've done here. I am the resurrection. So there's a pedagogical component to this that I think if I was Lazarus, that Lazarus, that would make me deeply resentful. Meaning, you let me die, yeah, just so that you could prove to others a truth about you. Yeah, he didn't do the whole uh, Samuel thing of why did you disturb me. No, there is nothing like that. It's, in fact, I think actually Lazarus is mute. He doesn't say anything. Wow, he's yeah. a tool then. And I don't, I don't mean tool as in like a total loser. I mean he is a tool for Jesus in Jesus's teaching. According to this reading, yeah, yeah. That, the the strange thing is that when Mary or Martha tells Jesus that Lazarus died, he weeps. It's the shortest or one of the two shortest uh, verses in the whole New Testament. Wow. I think the other one is pray ceaselessly in one of Paul's letters. But he weeps. And I think to myself, well, why would he weep if he knew that Lazarus was going to die and that uh, he was doing this for a point to be made? So it's one of the seven signs in the Gospel of John. And in this case, uh, each of the, the signs conveys a truth to the reader about the identity of Jesus. Mm-hmm. So Jesus, after feeding the 5,000, which is predicated on a miracle story from the Hebrew Bible, the, mm-hmm. the prophet Elisha feeding 100 mm-hmm. with 20 loaves of fish. And Elijah resurrects somebody also. Right. That's, mm-hmm. and, so, and that story, in that case, Jesus does the same thing in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, only he does it better. Oh, and in sure. this case, Jesus multiplies not a, not 20 loaves of bread, but it's five loaves of bread to feed 5,000 people. That's the gospel not of Mark says four, right? Well, yeah. They're not trying to make any point at all. Right. Yeah. Wow. So you have these seven signs in the gospel of John, and they're all signs that disclose Jesus's identity, whereas in the earlier gospels, the signs are all pointing, I guess you could say his miracles, rather, are not pointing to himself, but to the kingdom of God that he's manifesting, the most common miracle being healing. So the kingdom of God that he's manifesting will be an era or an age of wholeness and restoration. You don't see that in the Gospel of John. But that hasn't happened yet. No, the argument is at best it was inaugurated, but it has not been completed. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so, you know, you were wondering why he cried when he heard Lazarus died? Yeah. Okay, so I swear to God this pertains. Okay. I was watching Bones with my daughter. Have you ever watched Bones? I have never. It is a television show about a forensic anthropologist and the hot FBI agent that she ends up marrying. Spoiler alert. Now you don't have to watch the show. And there's a character that's going through a breakup. And the person 
inaugurating the breakup is crying. And she's saying to her soon-to-be ex-boyfriend that she's so sad and she hates having to do this, but we, they need to break up. And Abby, 11 years old, I'm a great parent, turns to me and says, if she's crying and she's sad, why is she doing it? And I said, well, sometimes even when it is the right thing to do and the necessary thing, it's painful. Maybe you just explained that story <laughs> better than I could have. No. That's great. That's great. Yeah. yeah. Jesus was sad. Yeah. Okay. So, um, it's tough. It's, mm-hmm. I think the, there are, there are a lot of problems around that story. It's the only one of its kind in the Gospel of John, and it's the only account of Lazarus being reanimated. And I use that word on purpose. It's not a resurrection. Mm-hmm. The resurrection is is something that transforms the body, such that according to John's gospel, when Mary first encounters the risen Christ, she thinks he's the gardener. And Paul talks about transformation using the analogy of a seed being planted in the ground. It comes up something different. And I think Paul and Jesus are both uh, good first century Jews yeah. who are appealing to a belief commonly held by, I believe, the Pharisees that has... And others. That goes back to the book of Daniel, chapter 12. Does, and maybe older. Um, you think? It's just, I'm as I told you, we were talking earlier today, and you all should have been there, but you weren't because we were in Starbucks. And um, I, I'm, I'm comfortable making endpoint determinations. It had to have... This text had to come, have come into existence, or this idea had to come into existence prior to this point. But I'm not willing often to give a beginning point mm. because of the nature of biblical texts and their histories and, and canonization. But so it could have been earlier. It becomes a part of, um, rabbinic Jewish teachings about the coming of the Messiah, bodily resurrection. And, um, the idea that you're going to need your body is a component of Jewish burial practices where you want to bury people as whole as possible. So if ever there's something like a bomb, um, people work to collect all the body parts. Is that something commonly practiced in Judaism? Um, collecting the body parts? Mm-hmm. Or, or, well, or preserving the, the corpse to, to the best degree possible for the well, sake of a future resurrection? Okay, so as all things in Judaism, this is how I'm going to answer this. I'll tell you that the halakha, the Jewish law is that you need to be buried whole and um, you need to have as much of the body as possible. And sometimes when there are um, terrorist attacks or where there, when there used to be bombings uh, in Israel, um, I mean, there still are sometimes, but it's less common now, you would see people out there looking for body parts and they are called the Heber Kadisha or the members of the sacred society and they're responsible for burial. And they exist in um, any sizable Jewish community. There's going to be at least one Hever Kadisha. So they would look for the body parts to bury them whole. And the idea is that you need to be buried whole. And you need to be buried as close to the plain earth as possible. And if you can't bury the person in dirt, just put them in a simple pine box and wrap them in a simple linen shroud. No differentiation between the wealthy and the poor or any of that. Um, and that when the Messiah comes the dead will be resurrected. This is one view. There's a million views. This is one view. Um, and the first place um, that they're expecting that the Messiah will come is on the Mount of Olives. So there are so many people buried in the Mount of Olives that they have to be buried in tears because wow. they, they're like levels because they want to be the first people. What do Jews do? All kinds of things. Plenty right. are cremated. I know in the history of the Christian church, the 
There are accounts of Roman soldiers mocking the early Christians by burning the bodies so Oof. that they couldn't be resurrected. And in the, oh. the Middle Ages, Meister Eckhart, a famous mystic who challenged prevailing conceptions of God, was put on trial, and I believe he was acquitted. He dies in 1327. There are conversations that follow. It's determined he, his teachings were heretical. His remains are exhumed and destroyed. So I mean, it's interesting. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to me to think, I don't believe at least when it comes to, I'm going to make a gross. Go for it. Generalization. Have fun. It's, it's amazing to me how few Christians there are who actually believe in a resurrection of the body. That's on the books. That's the conservative orthodox teaching. Now, it isn't like we're talking with Lazarus, a reanimation simply of a corpse, a sort of zombie apocalypse. That's a, mm -hmm. it's, it's a transformation of the body, and the body, and with it I assume the mind, they both, they both cease altogether upon death, but then a new creation occurs. Mm -hmm. And I think for most Christians, I, I, I encounter this a lot when I'm doing uh, funeral planning with, with families. They don't grasp in many cases, even if they were raised in the tradition, why it's important to preserve the body historically for Christianity, mm -hmm. as well as I'm hearing at least for a part of Judaism, according to Jewish law as well. They, for, for them, the soul is immortal. It, mm -hmm. it existed mm -hmm. from, from the beginning and it will exist somehow beyond death. My problem is this is where I think resurrection is actually at least a little more appealing than the immortality of the soul. I cannot grasp with my human brain how it is that my essence or my, the constellation that make of personality that makes me who I am, how that could possibly exist beyond a physical substratum to support it. I, I think consciousness is fascinating. How do you get from circuitry and matter to consciousness? Mm -hmm. I think that's a fascinating question. Mm -hmm. Of course, because I ask it. But the, <laughs> the, the real question for me, though, is, how on earth can we justify the post-mortem existence of something that seems to require a physical substratum for its existence in the first place? Really good question. I have to tell you that um, there are Jewish views of the afterlife that include an, an incorporeal post-death mm -hmm. existence as well. Um, you don't, in the Mishnah, you don't necessarily have a sense that the body and the soul are separate, but we found this 8th century BCE I'm blanking on if it was the 8th or the 7th, and I apologize. Um, Stila. Don't let that happen again. I know. Unforgivable. I know. Stila, the Kutamua Stila. I probably pronounced that incorrectly. Um, uh, in the ancient Near Eastern context, a man had had erected, um, indicating that when he died, his soul would reside in his kitchen. He, he what is, he put this on a sign? Where yeah. He put this on a sign uh -huh. indicating, you know, in my home, and when I die, my soul will reside here in my kitchen. Hmm. And, oh, it's weird. But on the other hand, everyone got really excited because it's the oldest reference we have in the Canaanite context for a belief that the soul exists separate from the body. Wow. 
um, hmm. because we thought that was always a much later idea that the soul exists separate from the body. Um, and I hear what you're saying about the body. The rabbi at Temple to Her Sinai, whom I love, uh, is very open about the fact that he thinks when we die, we become worm food. Yeah, and I want to. Yeah. I I kind of want to second that. Yeah, I think it's it's healthier in the face of death to acknowledge the finality of death. There there is a teaching that in the Christian tradition that the soul sort of has a layover. Uh, and I kind of want to say in the Bible, is it the, the bosom of Abraham? Is that, do they use that phrase? That's not a layover. That's one of the, one of the, is that um, a final resting place? Yeah. That w- one of the afterlife concepts is being gathered to the fathers. Interesting. Yeah. So Luther and John Calvin, and I believe Thomas Aquinas, they teach that the soul resides in God, you might say, as a kind of layover and it doesn't experience time in the transition between its own death and the present age and the the mm-hmm. age of the resurrect the 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 a- whatever the new age is and the resurrection that goes with it where the soul and body are reunited mm-hmm. in a new body mm-hmm. again i mean i like that view because at least it a- acknowledges that there is a kind of total cessation of soul and uh, of mind and body upon death and i I want to lift up claims like that because they strike me as more realistic. When I do, though, the question that I have is, well, okay, let's affirm total cessation of consciousness, say. Mm -hmm. How on earth am I supposed to believe, though, that somehow consciousness, my consciousness, the consciousness of people I love is – I want to throw out a bunch of questions here – is – is going to survive? By what power does it survive? How do we talk about that? What do we do? I know we can't talk about time into eternity. Paul Tillich says in one of his sermons that the most profound image of hell is the image of heaven with which most Christians understand the afterlife because it's just an ongoing, uh, endless future. And that is hellish when you think about it. I used to think about that a lot as a kid. I spent a lot of time alone. But I think, (laughs) I think. You know what? what? So did I. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Hence the source mm-hmm. of the podcast. Mm-hmm. I I want to believe these things. And yet, at the same time, I want to be unburdened by needing to believe. So I wanted to read this quote. It's from... I wanted to be unburdened from needing to believe? I, yeah. I want to be freed of, of straining. Yes. I want to be freed of straining to believe in something. I so, have to tell you before you start reading, I recall when I was four, not being able to sleep at night because I was trying to conceptualize what happens when we die. Right. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Go ahead. What are you reading from? So this is after Auschwitz by uh, Rabbi Richard Rubenstein, and he writes... Judaism possesses no myths of denial by which Jews can pretend that this time is other than tragic, that is, time of death. No attempt is made to disguise the emotional impact of death. Every Jewish ritual at the time of mourning forces the Jew to acknowledge the stark reality of what has transpired. Death is not denied. It is affirmed so that the survivors can take up the task of living realistically when the time of healing begins. During the Shiva period... The mourners are not left to themselves. In that crisis in which the individual feels most bereft, the community offers him or her the presence of his peers to acknowledge and share his terrible burden. 
Shiva is one of the institutions through which Judaism transcends meaning and insight and becomes a sharing of ultimate concern. And I, I, I find that both tragic as it is, but also freeing as a, as a Christian. What would it mean in my tradition, in my community, simply to gather around people who, people in the faith community and share in their pain without needing to offer cliches that often do more harm than good. So the general setup for rituals, I'm sure you know this, but just I'll just say it for the sake of being obvious, um, that when, when somebody dies in a Jewish context, you're supposed to bury them as quickly as possible. And typically from the moment of death until burial, the family's on their own. And But people can help with preparation of the body and whatnot. Starting with burial, though, the family's not supposed to be alone. And that's when you have Shiva. Seven days of people coming um, to be with the family, uh, making sure that they can say the three prayer services every day. So you have to have ten people there. You need a minion, so you can say mourner's Kaddish. And bringing food. I always tell my students, if you are called to go to a Shiva, don't bring flowers. Bring food. Because the family should not have to worry about the daily matters. Other people should run the errands, go through the mail, make sure they're fed, make sure the kids are taken where they need to be taken so they can sit and, and wallow. Mm-hmm. But there's this, and then after, then the, the first uh, month you're in an altered state, the entire first year you're in an altered state, but you need a community the entire first 12 months um, to manage the loss. And um, there's a there's a really kind of funny traditional teaching. You know in the book of Job when... Everything happens to Job, and then his three friends show up, and they sit down with him mm-hmm. silently for seven days, and then they start talking, and once they start talking, it's awful. They're giving him, you know, you surely did something wrong, and God doesn't do anything without a reason. Okay, so from this, the rabbis devise, uh, devise a teaching that you shouldn't, don't say any crap to the people that are grieving. In fact, there's one teaching that you shouldn't say anything until one of them acknowledges you. And that all you do then is be there. Don't say he's in a better place. God called him home. Don't say, you know, he was so great. God wanted him back. Right. Um, all the crap that all people say. All those terrible, unbiblical things d- that people say. Don't just let them hurt. Right. Just let them hurt. Just let them hurt and be right. with them in the hurt. I think that's, there are, there are echoes of that. In the Christian tradition, yeah. I've seen even within the last year, my own church gather around people who are facing extreme hardship and the finality of death, and do what you're what you're talking about for the living. Even I don't think we have an equivalent, however, in the in the Christian tradition, and I wish we did. I think Walter Brueggemann, the mm-hmm. the uh, Old Testament scholar. Yeah. He talks about, I believe, the the need for some equivalent to Shiva in the Christian tradition. And mm-hmm. I, I think one of the things that inspired me to to leave academia and become a pastor was something attributed to Bonhoeffer. I don't know if Bonhoeffer said this exactly, but toward the end of his life, he says to to someone else, according to this film, real Christianity is sharing one another's pain. Mm -hmm. And I think to myself, that's what I want to be part of. Yeah, And I've found, not that I'm seeking pain, 
But pain is a reality. It's a part of life. Loss is a part of life. And the fact that so many people have to face that alone, just, yeah. I find that so tragic. And, I, and I'm afraid of that in my own life. When, yeah. my, when my parents are gone, uh, most of my aunts and uncles are all gone. My grandparents are all gone. And I think to myself, will I be alone at the end of my life? What will that be like? And I notice a lot in, in my experience, people want to talk about instead of calling it a funeral or even a memorial, they want to call it a celebration of life. Right. And I always push back on that because my concern is that we simply hide our grief mm -hmm. and talk about how great this person was. So it ends up becoming basically an adoration of a saint. Right. And then afterward, people are left to grieve on their own. And I, I think that's horrible. Yeah. I think it's evasive. I, I think it's it's being in denial. And I know that I just want other people around yeah. in those moments. Doesn't mean I don't also want to be alone at sure. points and grieve privately. But I think ritual and, and ritual in a public space in a community allows people to begin to facilitate those feelings of grief. Yeah. It helps them deal with that. And the fact that you have a tradition that goes on for a year that does this. I and think then, it's remarkable. Yeah. I think it's, I almost wonder if it's, if it's unique among all the world religions. I can't speak to that sitting here, but that's an interesting question. I can tell you that um, one of the things I like about it is there's also no expectation of the people grieving to, you don't have to get dressed up. You don't have to like feed everybody. You just sit and hurt and everyone just comes in and takes care of everything. And that's the ideal um, and I think that is healthy. And didn't Brueggemann also write when he was writing about the Psalms that there is need for a Christian tradition of communal lament? That sounds right. Okay. Maybe that's what he was talking about. I don't know if he also, and maybe I'm, I'm sort of conflating that with Shiva, but Shiva is that communal lent over, it is, the, yeah. over the course of a year. But it, yeah. it is. Um, and there is, there are traditions in Judaism where you just feel sad and you sit on the ground and you don't eat and you, and you be in that together. And I think that's liberating. That's yeah. what I love about reading After Auschwitz yeah. by Rubenstein is that you dispense with the with the with those things that hold up fantasies hmm. about what dreams may come. <laughs> that's not to say that there isn't anything after we die, I, but I don't think I, I would say that's certainly beyond my pay grade. Sure. <laughs> and I, yeah. and I really think that I really think that the best of my tradition should recover what it means to live these 28,000 days fully. That makes sense. Instead yeah. of my grandma told me on her deathbed, she said, don't waste your youth thinking about heaven. And I, I didn't, I spent most of it thinking about purgatory, but <laughs> But I appreciated some of the mm -hmm. wisdom in that. And I've long been fascinated by the various conceptions of the afterlife, both sure. in the Hebrew Bible and in the Christian scriptures and in subsequent Christian tradition. And there are some beautiful expressions of what dreams may come. Mm -hmm. But at the end of it all, I think about something my mom and I talked about. She said that after she dies, we, we were going to make this pact where she would let me know how things were. And now I... I'm not sure I want to make that pact because if I don't hear from her after she dies, mm. that means either she was not able to fulfill her promise or there is nothing. 
And I wonder if, if life and if the best of religion is meant to help us cope with and face that nothing instead of wrapping it up in, in a pretty bow and pretending that things are going to be just fine. I don't know. I, I'd rather yeah. have the courage to face the abyss than... It's the inevitable is what it is. It's yeah. going to happen to all of us. It is. And, and we're all going to lose somebody and there's no way around it. And it's a tradition that forces you to just sit there and look at it. But how do you, how do you face this with integrity? That's my question. You That's why I always restrain myself when I think about particularly the cliches that are so oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. like the ones you mentioned earlier. Right. But I think to myself, I want to face my mortality and the mortality uh, of others with integrity. And I, I marvel at the Jewish tradition, in particular Ecclesiastes, which, which looks at, at this reality and says, who knows? Eh, yeah. Chapter three, who knows? Yeah. Meh. Meh. Yeah. I love Ecclesiastes. His whole word was meh, have a drink. <laughs> I think that's meh. Mordecai too in the book of Esther where he says, meh, yeah. who knows? <laughs> who Help knows? may come from another place. It could have been a little more severe since genocide was on the line, but. Um, it could have been. Slightly. It could have been, that's maybe. A fair point. But, um. No, I think that's really interesting. And the, and the reality is we don't know, right? And a certain, sometimes I feel like the best I can do in these conversations is be honest. So when my kids have asked me, um, what happens when we die? I've said, I don't know. Cause it's what my parents said to me. Mm. And I'm glad yeah. I didn't have to deconstruct anything later. Did it scare the crap out of me? Yes. That's why I couldn't sleep at night. Cause I was thinking about what happens when we die. But that's also because of who you and I are as people in the world. This is how our brains have worked since we were children. But do you remember one time we were talking about this and you told me that you think a lot about mortality and you asked me if I do. And I said, no. Because you already have? No. Um, Why do you think that is? It is totally beyond my control. And so you've let it go because of that? There will be times where I'm going to have to face it when my parents die and I move up to the front of the line. Hmm. Right? Interesting. Interesting image for that. I think of it sometimes as a, as a river and there are some... there We all have to go over the waterfall. Yeah. And some of us are much closer to that waterfall, although at any moment, any of us could go over the waterfall. And we don't know. How do you make sense of, of the continuation of consciousness? Uh, it's hard for me to, to, to wrap my mind around even the remote possibility that God would somehow preserve consciousness, which in, in the case of human beings has only at best 80 to 100 years to develop before it's before it fades away, yeah. before it's shed, this mortal, you know, this mortal coil like Shakespeare talks about. How do we, why would God affirm or support the endurance of that consciousness in a, in a universe that's gone on for almost 14 billion years? Why, I just can't wrap my mind around why God would pre preserve and support something that's so brief in our in cosmic history i mean there's a great uh there's a great line by samuel beckett he says they give birth astride the grave their life gleams an instant then it's night once right. more and i think to myself yeah our light does gleam an instant why would god preserve that instant quote unquote eternally so 
you know that I don't, um, you're, you're asking this rhetorically, but I'm totally going to answer it. Because, no, I'm not asking it rhetorically. Oh, you're not? I, you're not? I, I, there's a part of me that really want, well, actually all of me wants to hear any kind of answer you have. So what do you think? Well, you know that I wrestle with God concepts and I usually don't have a sense of a God that acts independently of the human realm or na- natural realm, like the sort of reconstructionist theology we've talked about. Um, and so I don't really have a puppeteer image of God making choices about things like that. But I can tell you that um, Carl Sagan, did you ever read Contact? I saw the movie. You saw the movie. I haven't read I the I think book. the line is in the movie also. Her experience, he was such a spiritual I've heard the person. Beastie Boys talk about Sagan. Of course I've got they billions and billions Jew. of rhymes to flex because oh, yeah. I got more rhymes than Carl Sagan's got That's, turtlenecks. Oh my God. <laughs> he did have a lot of turtlenecks. That's recorded. Yeah, um, <laughs> I know. Woo! Um, but okay, so he he looked his work as an astrophysicist was so closely tied to it was it was a part of his own spiritual nature, right? And that comes out in his writings. And when the main character in contact has this glimpse of a universe that is vast and contains so much more life than she thought. She says it made her realize how tiny and insignificant and rare and precious we all are. And I think that stays with me. I couldn't agree more. I, I think we are the, the, the odds of any one of us existing are basically zero. They're very, the the fact that molecules of that the dust from stars have become molecules in our bodies that somehow not only allow us to live, but sustain this precious fleeting consciousness that we have is, is a profound gift. And I think when we phrase it as gift, that's the only avenue for me that, that I would say provides a path to God. There is a sense I have to use even the words of Richard Dawkins, the atheist, that we won the cosmic lottery. Mm-hmm. The difference between me and Dawkins is that I want to thank the universe right. for for the life I've been given and the consciousness that I have. And I do so by, I guess you could say, by personifying God, by, by turning what I would... Whatever equivalent there is in Christianity of Reconstructionist Judaism, mm-hmm. whatever parallel there is, that's where I'm at as well. Well, you know, the joke is everyone's a Reconstructionist. They just don't know it. <laughs> I would say that that God is something like the, the self-giving creative essence of all things. Mm-hmm. And I want to relate to this God by way of gratitude not by way of strained belief about what dreams may come. And that's where I think this is sort of plugging my generalization of Judaism based on on Rubenstein, and, and, and that is that there's a kind of freedom here. I mean, when it comes to the resurrection for me, and this is, this is something I take from theologians like Rudolf Bultmann, a biblical scholar of the 1940s and 50s. I don't know if you read him. He, you, he wouldn't apply to, to your work. <laughs> no, but um, I, d- I do know what you're you talking know, about. Yeah. yeah. So the, the whole idea that Jesus is, that Jesus conquers death by way of being reborn in those who follow him after he dies. And I'm willing to go beyond that and say there is a, 
a kind of mystical presence that they experienced. I, I could say that, mm-hmm. that somehow his, the essence of who he was, was reconfigured among his followers in the manner and way in which they lived for others instead of only for themselves. But to go beyond that, I know. I, that's why, I mean, at least the resurrection stories, you have a variety and you have, um, followers or second, third generation writers talking about how the early followers, that's important, I think, to, to distinguish that, mm-hmm. are um, essentially reporting perhaps oral tradition, uh, ways of different ways of talking about the experience of this risen Christ. Yeah. And in some cases, it's a, it's more of a ghostly figure. The, the earliest writings we have about it are Paul uses the word opte in Greek, which means vision or manifestation, Mm -hmm. apparition. So the disciples perhaps experienced Jesus in a variety of ways, and those stories were eventually recorded, if not perhaps in some cases invented by later writers. But either way, for me as a Christian, there's something there, but there's not enough there there to justify the kind of robust beliefs that I think many Christians hold. Sure. Uh, and I would argue in some cases, heretical and erroneous beliefs that mm-hmm. don't reflect the basic affirmations of the Orthodox Christian tradition that we believe in the resurrection of the body, not we believe in the immortality of the soul. That's a creed. Mm-hmm. And many of us in mainline Protestant and Catholic churches say that creed every Sunday. So I don't know what to do with all of it. All I know is that whatever glimp whatever whatever however many moments remain for me i want to live a life of gratitude and i think religion at its best that's a huge generalization but religion at its best should cultivate that in um, jewish tradition you're supposed to say a hundred blessings a day and the blessings are gratitude that's what mm-hmm. they are. You notice something, you experience something, and you thank God for it. Wow. And you're supposed to do that 100 times a day. I want to suggest for our next podcast a conversation that starts with that, where the, the question being, can one be grateful in, a, in, in even the most tragic of situations? Um, what does that look like? Why? why yeah. yeah. I think it's a great question, and we will. And I wanted to say before we wrap up here that when it comes to something that transcends death, I'm, it sticks in my head that your mother said to you, yeah. right, that her love for you tra- will transcend death. And the perhaps only convincing thing I've ever heard in Christian theology about life after death is a line that Paul Tillich, I mentioned him twice, I think, earlier, apparently said to his students, it was shared to me by somebody at one of the funerals I was doing who happened to be a student of Tillich's back in the 1950s. And they pressed him on this question of life after death. And he says, whatever, whatever it is, basically, if God is love, then love holds on. And I think that's probably the best I could say. And maybe that's enough. I think so. Even if my daughters are in their 80s when I die, I'm going to haunt them and tell them to put on a jacket. If your daughters are in their 80s when yeah. you die? Yeah. So how old will you be? 120. <laughs> I'm sorry, but 
you do not pharmaceuticals in business. No, I don't I know. know. And that's why can... I'm going to live oh, to be 120. Okay. <laughs> okay. Oh my God. Are you kidding? I'm going to be preserved chemically. It's wow. Per- what do you mean? I keep pharmaceuticals. Well, in business? <laughs> we keep, I think we we've do. had that. We've had that. We've had that competition. I think I take more pills than you do. Anyway, I think you, you might just ed- edge me out. You are the one where everybody knows your name at the pharmacy. The way yeah, they're like, hey. yeah, <laughs> it's getting that way now. In fact, the pharmacist that I go to asked me about, I, I had my, the clerical yeah, on, yeah. on a Sunday and I went in to get something. He goes, you're a, a priest. I said, no, I'm a Lutheran pastor. And, and he said, Oh, I was raised. Uh, my wife is Lutheran and we were married at a Lutheran church. Aww. And he said, what time is your services? And I'm oh thinking, my God. Oh my gosh. My, <laughs> my pharmacist <laughs> comes to my church. That's, oh my I don't know God. what to do with that. But. Okay. That is hilarious. All right. All right. Well, well, until Thanks, next everybody. time. Yeah. Thank you. 